Uh, The second reading this evening is from Romans 15, starting at verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. I have written to you quite boldly on some points, and if to remind you of them again, because of the grace that God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Ilricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. It's a deeply personal song, isn't it? Thank you for saving me. You are my everything. You shed your blood for me. You took my sin and shame. You've set your hope in me. Mercy and grace are mine. Forgiven is my sin. Jesus, my only hope. Those personal expressions of faith are effectively put to music. And if you sang those words and you meant them, you were communicating to Jesus just how much he means to you personally and how grateful you are to him for all that he's done for you. Real faith can never be anything other than deeply personal faith. It's not just believing that Jesus died, it's believing that Jesus died for my sin. 
It's not just believing that Jesus rose again from the dead. He rose again from the dead to be my Lord, to rescue me, to be my saviour. Real faith has to be a personal faith. But a personal faith is not the same as a private faith. Because we sing about Jesus being my only hope and we also sing about him being the saviour of the world. And it's right to sing those words too because Jesus, if Jesus is my saviour, he is the saviour of everyone in the world. There is no one in the world for whom Christ did not die. There is no one who falls outside the scope of his salvation. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So the Christian faith is both a very personal faith, but it's also a universal faith. It is a faith for all nations, all peoples. This is not private to me alone. It's public in as much as it is for everybody. The gospel of the power of God for salvation of anyone who believes, no matter what their background, nationality or history. So let me invite you to listen again to some of those verses from Romans 15. But this time I'll replace the word Gentiles with the word nations. And that's an entirely legitimate translation of the word. Gentiles simply means non-Jews, the nations in the world apart from Israel. We tend to think of it as a kind of technical term, but it isn't really. The point Paul is making is that God's vision is for all nations together to glorify him with one heart and one mouth. So he quotes verses from the Old Testament that say, I will praise you among the nations. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. Praise the Lord, all you nations. The root of Jesse, that's Jesus, will rule over the nations and the nations will put their hope in him. It's the whole world joining together to celebrate Jesus. The whole world embracing the gospel. The whole world accepting God's salvation in Christ. It is a universal faith. People sometimes think of Christianity as a Western religion, which it isn't. It's never really been a Western religion. It originated in the Middle East. In this country, the fastest growing churches are the black majority churches in London. And the Catholic Church is benefiting from enormous influx of people from Eastern Europe. It's not a Western religion. In years to come, the majority of Christians in the world will be based in sub-Saharan Africa. It is a universal faith. How do the nations of the world feel about the message that Jesus rules over them, one wonders? Do they willingly accept him as their king or is there a degree of enforced subjugation in all of this? Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 11 and that nation, that, that reference does talk about the nations putting their hope in him. Which implies that they will look on Jesus as their saviour and deliverer rather than their conqueror. But there's no denying that some of the verses Paul cites have decidedly militaristic overtones. Deuteronomy 32 speaks of God taking vengeance on those adversaries, making his arrows drunk with blood while his sword devours flesh. The nations are called to rejoice with his people when God takes vengeance on his enemies. It's hard to read those words today. Because we, we live in, in a world today where we're conscious of how 
religious zeal, when combined with violence, actually is hugely destructive. And we listen to those words and we, we can't avoid the, hearing echoes of the ruthlessness of ISIS coming to mind. Psalm 18 is a psalm of David which speaks of God subduing nations under him as he beats his enemies like dust born on the wind and pours them out like mud in the streets. We might want to take a step back from that kind of language to some extent when we think of God ruling over the nations. And it seems pretty clear that this is not the kind of scenario that Paul has in mind. He envisages the nations glorifying God for his mercy, rejoicing with his people and singing praises to him. The only conquest he has in mind seems to be the conquest of people's hearts. And let's not forget that the king he is proclaiming is the one who was crucified and executed by the Romans, the world superpower of the day. If ever there was a ruthless killing machine in that period of history, it was the Roman Empire. But Jesus' victory over the Roman Empire was not a victory won by superior military might or tactics. It was the victory of resurrection life over death. The victory of the power of love and forgiveness over the forces of hatred and enmity. God's weakness overpowering human strength. The message of the kingdom of God which Paul took across the Western Mediterranean world was one which declared that people of all nationalities were welcome in the kingdom of Jesus. That all barriers between them and God had been removed. That God's transforming power was there to deliver from the powers of sin and death and destruction. And by, by putting their trust in the crucified saviour, they would come to share in his resurrection life. Faced with the apparently omnipotent might of the Roman Empire, Paul embraced an alternative worldview where Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And 2,000 years later, when the Roman Empire belongs to ancient history, it is still the gospel of Jesus Christ which is changing hearts and lives across the globe. You have to wonder at Paul's vision that the day would come when in every nation under heaven there would be people who declare Jesus is Lord. At a time when it seemed that every nation under heaven actually declared that Caesar is Lord. But the gospel of God has prevailed. And in these dark and difficult days, we continue to trust that it will continue to do so. Because the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We need to hold on to that and embrace that confidence and hope as Paul did in his day. Paul saw himself as a priest, bringing people from every nation under heaven into the presence of God to worship Jesus Christ as Lord. His perspective was nothing if not universal. Because God raised Jesus from the dead There was hope for the entire world. That's what Paul believed. That was the driving force behind his mission. Because God raised Jesus from the dead, there is hope for the entire world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? It puts the resurrection of Jesus at the fulcrum of world history. It means that there is hope. It means that God will fulfill his purposes. It means that good will prevail. 
that we're on the winning side, if you like. And that is a challenge we need to bear in mind because these are especially dark days in which we live at the moment. There are few people who look forward to the next 30, 40, 50 years with any degree of optimism or confidence. It is an increasingly dangerous and uncertain world in which we live. Climate change will become less and less of an issue which people can ignore. It will bring vast political and international instability in its train. People wonder about the future of the Christian church in this country. It is very easy to get pretty depressed and anxious about the world to come. And those of you who are kind of at the upper end of the age range might be glad you're not going to be here to see those days. Yet we are called to be people of hope and trust and faith in the face of adversity. And it is... It is a this-worldly hope as well as a next-worldly hope. Because Paul didn't envisage salvation ultimately in terms of Christians simply being airlifted out of a global disaster zone into the peace and tranquility of heaven. His vision was that the whole of creation should be liberated from its bondage to futility and destruction and glorified through God. On that day we will no longer be alienated from God We will no longer be alienated from each other. We will no longer be alienated from the world. We will no longer be alienated from ourselves. Everything will be made new in Christ. There will be a new creation. And it's this earth and this heaven that will be renewed. God created this world with a purpose in mind for it. The whole created order. And he doesn't scrap it and tear it up and throw it away. God will fulfill his purpose for this creation. And he has shown his intention of doing so by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. The first fruits of the resurrection, the turning of the tide, the, the inbreaking of God's kingdom into our world order. And what God has started in Christ, he will complete at Christ's return. That was Paul's vision. That was what drove him, and we need to hold on to that hope today in the midst of darkness and adversity and difficulty. And our role, and this is arguably even more challenging, our role as the church is to give people a glimpse of what the glory of heaven will be like. Now there is clearly at times a disparity between the kind of people that we are in terms of how people see us, and what heaven will be like. I hope and pray that glorious as Brighton Road Baptist Church is, heaven will be a whole lot better. But we as a body of people, our calling, our role, our commission, is to give people a glimpse of what the glory of heaven will be like. Because Paul talks about the whole of creation being set free from its bondage to decay and embracing the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Our role as the church is to be a blueprint of how things ought to be and how things can be by the grace and the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a lot to live up to. But when we come together in fellowship 
to worship God and we, we give our praise and our worship to God and we tell God how marvellous he is, God wants to be able to respond and say, look, that's how it's supposed to be. That's what I had in mind when I made those people. Look how those people are delighted to be together in my presence. Because when we come together as a diverse group of people and we unite in worshipping God and there is a sense of the glory and the presence of God, that is how it will be in the perfection of the new creation when God is all in all. And just occasionally, when we get the music right and we know the words and the, and the songs and we enter into it with the heart and spirit, we catch a glimpse, wow, that's what it could be like. But it starts at a very mundane level, of accepting each other. Accept each other as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Why should accepting each other bring praise to God? Because when people find themselves accepted and welcomed and included and forgiven no longer pushed to one side, no longer outsiders, no longer struggling with a sense of rejection or unworthiness, when they find, this is a group of people who accept me for who I am and include me and love me and and enable me to find my identity, their response is to bring praise to God because they find themselves knowing that they are God's beloved child, when they gather with God's people and worship God and recognise their identity in him. When we accept each other, those who are accepted offer praise to God as a result of that acceptance. And some of you will have had that experience. You're here because at some time you came to church feeling that you were nobody. And in the fellowship of God's people you found actually that you were somebody. You found grace, acceptance, love, and forgiveness and belonging and you're still here worshipping God today because of that accept each other for the praise of God the church is the family of God centred on Jesus Christ who says to people who have nowhere to belong we welcome you we accept you as one of us that can be challenging of course If it was easy, Paul wouldn't need to pray that God would give the church such a spirit of unity in following Christ that they would together be able to glorify God with one heart and with one mind. But that was his vision. That's what he prayed for. That was his goal. That should be our goal as well. That we so accept each other, that we have such a spirit of unity in following Christ together, that together we can glorify God with one heart and with one mind despite our differences. (coughs) So within the church, there can be no room for an attitude that divides people into a kind of them and us. There's always a tendency on our part to do that because we naturally gravitate to people who are a little bit like us. It's so much easier to to see someone and say, "I, I recognize someone on my wavelength in that person. I can easily make them welcome and give a slightly wider berth to the people I, I really don't quite know what to make of that person. I'll let someone else do the welcome in that case. 
But if we all do that, the consequence is that the church gradually becomes more and more monochrome and samey, which is tantamount to a denial of the gospel. Jesus always welcomed outsiders, and he calls us to do the same. The power of the gospel is apparent, where strangers receive what is for them an unexpected welcome among God's people and end up praising God because in being welcomed here, they know that God has welcomed them as well. In being accepted by us, they know that Christ has accepted them. Excuse me a moment. Thank you for this, Nigel. That, of course, does raise particular challenges to us in the UK at the moment. Immigration is never out of the news at present. We see hundreds of people trying, waiting to cross into this country illegally from Calais with what we fear could be countless thousands from all over the world coming up behind them, making their way to this country under the misguided impression that this is an easy place to find somewhere to live, get a job and start a new life. But we live in a world where vast numbers of people, almost unparalleled numbers of people, are refugees and migrants seeking to escape from unbearable situations caused by intractable problems. And there is no apparent solution. We need to be praying for the issues in these countries that are driving people away. The issues of justice and safety and righteousness and for a change to be happening in countries from which people are fleeing. And we need to pray for our government as they try and find the right way of dealing with this issue. Clearly, simply opening our borders will be impractical. Clearly, it is inhumane to let nobody in at all. What is clear is that truth can be in pretty short supply, both in the expectations of those who are seeking to come to the UK and in people's perceptions about those who are seeking entry to the UK and living here. And sometimes there is a lack of truth and transparency in the way in which people are dealt with by the authorities. As Christians, we need to resist the temptation to dehumanise them, the other people, the outsiders, the people we don't know and who perhaps perceive, we perceive as being a little bit threatening. The temptation is all the time to classify people and implicitly exclude them on the basis of a whole number of different things. Race, appearance, language, gender, age, social class, education, skin colour, employment, social background, sexual orientation... Churches are called to be places of welcome, acceptance, refuge and healing in the midst of a very impersonal and threatening and difficult world. Sanctuary is a place where God is honoured as holy. Sanctuary is a place where people find safety. The same word expressing different truths that are both exactly what the church should be about. We are called to be a sanctuary. Accept each other then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. There can be no outsiders in church. In Christ, we are all a new creation where all such distinctions have been abolished, neither male nor female, slave nor free, 
Jew nor Greek. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And equally, there are no no no-go areas for the church either. At our next church meeting, we'll be thinking a little bit about whether we are reaching the unreached parts of our town, and if not, how we should do so. But that vision can't be limited to Horsham. We should give thanks for and pray for and actively support organisations such as BMS World Mission, whose task is to work amongst the most marginalised and least evangelised people in the world, working at the invitation of local partners in those countries to help provide legal support to vulnerable people, to offer surgery and palliative care to people in need, food projects for the hungry, and education which may well be the key in providing a long-term future and hope to some of these apparently God-forsaking places. A global faith involves welcoming all who come. A global faith involves going to some of the hardest places in the world to serve Christ there and make a difference in his name. Because no place is God-forsaken where the people of God are working for him. And some of us will be uncomfortable with the whole idea of missionary work because we are still living with the toxic legacy of the colonisation of those countries where early missionaries took the gospel. But the kind of mission work that's being undertaken today is only conducted in partnership with and at the invitation of local churches, partners and agencies. The vision which inspired Paul is still inspiring people today to go. To go to a foreign country where it's not necessarily very safe, to be within a different culture and to work for the kingdom of God there because the kingdom of God is no respecter of international boundaries. That's one of the reasons why dictators and autocracies have always opposed the church because they recognise just how powerful and subversive it can be. As Christians, our faith is both deeply personal and universal. It cannot be any other way. Paul says in Romans 15 verse 8 that Christ became a servant to the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm God's promise to the patriarchs. Well and good. Christ fulfills the promises God made all those years ago to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But what's the outcome of that? Christ became a servant to the Jews to fulfill God's promises to the patriarchs but the result is that the nations glorify God for his mercy. God keeps his promise to his own people. But the promise was never intended to be for his own people alone, for their exclusive and sole benefit. God promised Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. That was God's purpose in calling Abraham in the first place. That was the purpose God wanted to see fulfilled through his people Israel. That's the purpose that God succeeded in achieving through his son Jesus Christ, descended from Abraham and one of his people. God made the promise to Abraham. Israel received the promise. God kept the promise. All the nations of the world are blessed and receive God's mercy through Christ in accordance with God's promise. God still keeps his promises. He will be utterly faithful to you as you put your personal trust in him. But the benefits of God keeping his promises to you have to reverberate far beyond your own personal life. 
The benefits of God keeping his promises to us have to sound out beyond the boundaries of the church. Because the outcome of God being faithful to you should be that others will be blessed. Because God's blessing and God's faithfulness should spill out of our lives into the world around us. What was it William Temple said? The church is the only society on earth that exists for the benefit of non-members. Or something like that. And we may quibble about whether he's right or not, whether there are other societies that exist solely for the purpose of, of being a benefit to those who don't belong, and all that kind of stuff. People have argued about whether he was saying the, telling the truth or not. That is just a red herring and a distract, distraction. The point is that here and now, us, Brighton Road Baptist Church in 2015, the reason we exist is to benefit those who do not belong here yet by making them welcome, whoever they are, wherever they're from, by going into the unreached parts of our town, the distant parts of our world. Or if we don't go ourselves, then praying for and supporting those who do. We have the good news of Jesus Christ. We know God is faithful and keeps his promises. We have a hope for the future. Others will only recognise it as good news if they hear it from us and see it in our life together. Accept each other then for the praise of God. Recognise the universal dimensions of the faith that is so personal to you. Live, work, speak, pray for the glory of God. Let's have a faith that's deeply personal and also a faith that's open and public. Because if it works for you, it can work for anybody. The gospel of the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, no matter who they are or where they come from. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us when we create divisions between us and them. For the way in which we find it easier to accept certain people and to walk by on the other side with certain other people. Every single human being is made in your image. Every single person is someone for whom Christ died. There is no life over which you do not claim authority as the Lord of all. Give us such a confidence in your gospel that we can live without fear for you. That we can face the future with hope. That we can love and accept those who cross our path. That we can make a difference in the lives of others and the situations we encounter through your gospel working in our lives. 
would you make our faith ever more personal to us and ever more universal in the scope of our prayers, our giving, our going, and our speaking. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.